there was trouble aboard the Washington Boulevard bus. Rye had expected trouble sooner or later in her journey. She had put off going until loneliness and hopelessness drove her out. She believed she might have one group of relatives left alive, a brother and his two children, 20 miles away in Pasadena. That was a day's journey one way, if she were lucky. The unexpected arrival of the bus as she left her Virginia Road home had seemed to be a piece of luck until the trouble began. Two young men were involved in a disagreement of some kind, or more likely, a misunderstanding. They stood in the aisle, grunting and gesturing at each other, each in his own uncertain tea stance as the bus lurched over the potholes. The driver seemed to be putting some effort into keeping them off balance. Still, their gestures stopped just short of contact. Mock punches, hand games of intimidation to replace lost curses. In a story that is absolute nightmare fuel, but manages to end on an up note, an illness has swept over the world, leaving humanity speechless. Literally, a woman named Rye ventures out into a society where violence has replaced words, finds a man, loses a man, and then finds hope in the form of two children. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. It's Short Story Short Podcast. I am Chris, today here with... Christy Baxter, who always says her last name, even though you never do. It's because they don't have a last name, like Cher or Dr. Oz. Just Chris. <laughs> Correct. Uh, hey, hey, Christy. Yes? If you were facing existential dread, what would story would you read this week? You say that as though I'm not facing existential <laughs> dread. And no matter what, I read Speech Sounds by Octavia Butler. And this is a story that is oddly applicable to today. I wish I had a warning. <laughs> <laughs> What's really funny about this story, and it's not funny, haha, more funny, oh my God, uh, is that... It is about a pandemic that makes people unable to communicate, which then drives them to their base urges. And something that on my second and third reading of this, I really caught on to was ultimately Octavia Butler seems to be saying that when you remove communication, the only possible phase for human interaction is violence. Yeah, it does seem to put a great deal of weight and importance into communication as, you know, the, the reason that we're even, even able to hold a, a cohesive society together because this society is, is falling apart because of the lack of communication. And, and that's both the written and verbal communication. So you have these, you know, like the bus just happened by her house. There's probably not any bus routes anymore because A, people's memories have also been kind of fading and B, you can't really read a bus map. So a guy just gets a bus and starts driving it around with pictures on the side, denoting what items he'll take in, in place of money for the fare. And 
this is what I love about Octavia Butler is she's not telling you the story of how humanity fell. She is telling you the implications of a scenario down the line. So she is taking, this is a post-apocalyptic story, which means basically we're not getting the apocalypse. What we're getting is what is left over, what is left to be humanity, I guess. Yeah, what are the what are the effects and implications of this pandemic? How has it changed? How has this apocalypse changed the world? Which, again, applicable. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one of the things that's great about Octavia Butler, one of the massive, massive figures of the 1970s and 80s, probably the one who understood how best to make efficient use of language while at the same time not being a language ripper. She doesn't tear apart to the absolute base, but she understands how to construct without throwing too many extraneous ideas. And for me, that is absolutely gigantic. It is very hard to do that. A conceptual yeah. minimalist as opposed to a prose minimalist. Yeah, it's it's not sparse, but it's efficient. Everything that is in there has a purpose and a reason for being there. And that is, it makes it very easy to get pulled into the world of the story. So I guess we could, if any writers were listening to this, we could translate that to writing advice or editing advice, really, you know, really question yourself where every little detail, does this belong? Does this need to be here? And then, of course, the standard rule of kill your darlings applies. And kill your darlings actually is one of my least favorite things about writing, uh, just because it's usually your darlings that people go, oh, that's so cool. Uh, but then that doesn't sell. Uh, I blame Amazon. Um <laughs> One of the other things about Octavia Butler, though, is that I know I've said this before, most recently yesterday, she's likely your favorite writer's favorite writer. She may not have the biggest following, but very influential on the generations that follow, including on a couple of the folks that we've already re read. Uh, one in particular I can think of who's I could see a very was Rachel Swirsky. And if you sort of of wrap your head around how they both form a story around a concept and then fiddle that concept out. Yeah, it's definitely, it's very high-minded and elevated as far as post-apocalyptic -apoc goes. Um, and that, that's not saying that, you know, most post-apocalyptic can't be, it's just saying that it's like, it, it's, it, and it's partially that efficiency of, of writing and that economy of ideas that makes it more high-minded and she you know because she's able to get to the core of what really matters about this new world that the the heroine rye finds herself in and this is the first time we have uh i would argue relatively explicit sex at least explicitly stated sex uh, in one of our stories that isn't by bug it's not insect incest. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, and that's hard to say. I could not pull that off, I don't think. 
I might even be able to do it five times fast, but I'm not gonna. (laughs) (laughs) But what's interesting here is that there is violence, there is sex, but what there isn't is that clear communication again. And we, though there is the wonderful, he did not, after a series of obscene gestures that brought him no closer to her, he turned contemptuously and walked away. And the obscene gestures note is really important to me as a part of what happens when you take away language and how do you make up for that in so many areas? Yeah, there's only so much you can do. You know, if you can't speak, then you can you can write. Uh, I'm actually in the beginning of this. I was taken back to uh, watching the episode "Hush" of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and that that also, in addition to the gentleman being very terrifying, there is the um, the just the, the the fear of losing one's voice. We should really do a Buffy recap podcast. <laughs> I like I I like Buffy. I like Buffy too. But yeah, so that that idea that first of all you don't have language, and second of all people then go to that alternate form of communication. In the case of say the bus driver, he puts pictures up for what fares he will accept. You know what objects of value. In the case of say in Buffy, they there's almost immediately a guy selling you know dry erase boards you can hang around your neck. <laughs> so you can write but we don't even have that in this society there's a lot of people have lost their ability to even write so it it comes down to what do we have left well we have body language and that's pretty much and and pictures and that's pretty much it and that's a terrifying terrifying lack It, it the world this world feels so much emptier and it's painful that's the word i was looking for emptier because it is, it is this idea that the people of society maintain and continue, but society does not necessarily continue. There is no continuance because we cannot communicate what society was to the next phase, and which is, of course, contradicted by the ending of the story. But that's an interesting, less important part, I think. But I think there's moments that when you look at them they become more I don't want to say crystal clear but more impressive Um, for example you have uh, this idea of I don't want to say implied distance being connected to real distance but uh, uh, when the bus was some distance behind them Rye wiped sweat from her forehead and longed to relax. The bus would have taken more than halfway to Pasadena. She would have only 10 miles to walk. She wondered how far she would have to walk now and wondered if walking a long distance would be her only problem. That is a very, very convoluted way of saying she took a gamble by getting on the bus. Yeah. But at the same time, it shows you the calculus that goes into everyday decision-making in a world where you can't communicate. There is so much calculus. You're right. That's a good way of describing it. There's her, her brain goes on this little 
little trip of, okay, so I did this. Now that means this, you know, that X means Y, Y means Z, Z means A, is A, you know, my best choice? Did I make a mistake? And, and that, and there's also the, the, that problem of distance, 10 miles, you know, that's half of the trip, a 20 mile distance between people when they can't communicate via phone because they can't speak, they can't communicate via post because, or email or whatever, because they can't write. That becomes almost like, it becomes so much more distance. Like it honestly, it makes me think again, of course we have to bring up this, this pandemic, but also I frequently thought during this pandemic during COVID-19, I've thought of this, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 and how different that must have been. You know, we have this ability to communicate with people long distance to see each other. You're in California, I'm in Pennsylvania, I can see you. We can talk and record a podcast together. None of those things, believe it or not, podcasts weren't even around in 1918. <laughs> Whoa, not even Adam Curry's? I know, right? It seems like there's so many of them that they must have been around for 103 years at this point. <laughs> but yeah, there was there were so fewer options in communication, and they were so much more robust than what we have now. And so, in this position where we are now, where we are all separated from each other, many of us are, and not seeing each other in person for the most part, you add to that this terror of you taking away our ability to communicate with each other. And that is just, I mean, I can only imagine if this entire podcast were just you and me sitting here on Zoom, like making gestures at each other, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be very entertaining or educational. Vogue. Um, Vogue, yes. <laughs> uh, but when you come to the end, oh, hello. Uh, when you come to the end of the story, what you have is a... It is not an ambiguous ending, but it is also an ending that opens up a lot of new avenues for sort of thought experiments. And here you have the two kids that she's now the protector of technically, um, which makes me, you know, every little thing on this opens up a whole new thought process in my mind. It's like, well, okay, so she's got the two kids. Are they legally hers? But then I go, wait, is there law? And there must be law, but no, there can't be law. And ah, that to me is what does a story is when you have that happening, when it is every string you pull leads to another string on the conspiracy theorist board of who shot JFK of my mind. Uh, <laughs> it's that, that sort of thing is happening here, but there's ultimately this question as to what exactly and how exactly has this pandemic affected people? Because this last section seems to negate a whole bunch of what happened before, or at least minimize it. Or possibly negate it. It doesn't seem like there's a certainty. And I think I think Butler is expressing that when she has Rye, our, our protagonist, questioning the fact that, okay, she's found these children after she lost the man Obsidian that it seemed briefly like she might end up cohabitating with. And so she's found these children, they're alone, they need her protection and they can speak. And it's, it's, they're under, they're, they're three years or, or even less possibly. 
And she herself is uncertain of what this means. Does this mean that, you know, after a certain point, children under three became immune? Does this mean that they are just, just a special case, you know, and they just didn't happen to catch it or this family was somehow immune? There's, there's so many different, you know, or is the disease over? Is this, is this it? And then, so now humanity can begin again with another generation that those few remaining who, who can pass on knowledge to each other can pass on knowledge to that generation and hopefully continue society in some way, shape or form that is better than what they have. And so there's so many questions. So she doesn't know. So you know, basically what Butler is doing is she's opening this can of worms for Rye, which then opens this can of worms for the reader. And we don't, you know, those are still, those are still questions that we, we don't have answers to because honestly, there's no way realistically that, that Butler could have given Rye the answer to those questions and therefore given the reader the answer because it's in the moment. You know, she has these questions in the moment and then a moment later she decides to take the children home and that's the end of the story. You know, if there was some weird epilogue where 10 years later, you know, the kids are like teaching other kids, that would feel almost hokey or I don't even know what the right word is for it, but I, I, I know I wouldn't like it as much as I like this. And one of the other things that really gets me on this one is that we have this oh by the way correct um this beautiful idea that oh things are going to be different and that where they where this moment is the inflection point this is where things start to change possibly we're at that point now in in history really in non-science fictional history really and i don't know if this story can be read without that thought in it right now if you go into it thinking, oh, obviously this means that the future is going to be different. It's going to be better. They're going to be able to communicate. They're going to be able to rebuild. Uh, they can make it faster, bigger, stronger. Or is this just that moment where, oh, everything looks great. And then you get to Empire Strikes Back and, you know, boom, it's the fall with this one light glowing moment. And what I love is that I think Octavia Butler knew the answer of what was next, but decided not to give it to us. And I think that has so much power to it. It really, you know, the best way to make people consider the weight of a moment is to not give them the moment after. And she does that beautifully here. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things to, to do as a writer is decide the right point to end a story. And I think she picked the perfect point here because of exactly what you say. It makes it a little bit ambiguous in, in that there are multiple paths that could be taken. You know, there's a lot of different timelines that this story could potentially follow because these questions have been raised but not answered. And that's fine. As writers, we don't have to answer all these big questions. And I think that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to do so, but we can give people that moment that like, like Butler does here in which people can try to answer that question for themselves, to can try to can try to really think and ruminate on that. And I think that's one thing that really good fiction does. It doesn't uh, insist on thinking for the reader, but it's not obvious that it's gonna make the reader think too. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a story that is made for a 
close reader who has a predilection towards living in their stories after they're finished reading them. And this is a world I could imagine anyone who write it wanting to live in, just wanting to put their head right in this charming, sweet little space. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, it's it's an amazingly drawn world. Uh, there's there's so many you know details that it just makes sense, even though there are things that you might not have thought of before. But this was a terrifying gut punch for a, a person who relies so much on communication as as I do. There were there were little moments here that just hit me so hard to the extent that I had to put it down for a second, just you know, take a deep breath before I dove back in. Uh, one of them, for instance, it just felt like I was like I'm I'm in this story and I don't like it. She had taught history at UCLA. She had done freelance writing. Now she could not even read her own manuscripts. She had a house full of books that she could neither read nor bring herself to use as fuel. And she had a memory that would not bring back to her much of what she had read before. That is a nightmare. Ah, uh, that is my nightmare. But books provide so much warmth. I mean, I throw a couple of Thomas Pinch on on the fire and I am warm for four or five hours. Uh, uh, I mean, they are they are dense enough that they would provide some good kindling, but I still can't approve. <laughs> well, it also, the fumes make the area 44% more pretentious. Um, what's interesting, though, I think here is once everything's wrapped up and nothing's wrapped up, it doesn't make you feel bad. Right. And I don't even know if it's necessarily the uprise at the end that does it but i think it's how much thought is going on within you that this story has brought up that manages to keep what should be oppressive from being oppressive i actually disagree with you i think i i'm i, I think it is very much just the, the glimmer of hope that butler has given us it's just a glimmer it's not even a certainty it's a possibility but we didn't have that before. Everything was just bleak and terrifying and empty. And now we have a little bit of something filling the glass that, that might end up uh, eventually overflowing if things go right. That's not to say things will definitely go right, but we have the possibility of hope. And that is, I think, as human beings, all we need to keep going. Sure. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I think this is one of my favorites. I love Octavia Butler, and I'm so glad we got to finally read this one. But uh, what else? Do you, what else do you think? Anything else? Um, I I had some fun with thinking about those obscene gestures uh, that are mentioned. That you know, loss of language had spawned a whole new set of obscene gestures, and that immediately got me thinking about you know, uh, trying to imagine what some of these new obscene gestures were and uh, how much of the human anatomy they would incorporate. Uh, I also found uh, an interesting detail that it seems like left-handed people were less likely to be super badly affected by the virus. That I wondered if there was a particular reason for that detail, if that was like, uh, if there's some 
if she was basing it on something scientific or if that was just like a little Easter egg for somebody, you know, like maybe maybe she was in the left handed club. Uh, she was basing it on the scientific proof that left handed people are jerks. Oh, OK. All right, then. Well, I mean, um, uh, I apologize to any jerks who are listening to our podcast. <laughs> Uh, they don't listen to podcasts. Their ears aren't fully formed. Um, but yes. Uh, so, hey, hey, Christy. Yes. Should we read a story next week? I think we should read a story next week. I think that is an excellent idea. I and think we should read something by this guy that you probably haven't heard of. He's he's real underground okay like obscure 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 all right his name is Ernest Hemingway <laughs> is that the Haverne guy <laughs> yes exactly and we are going to be reading his short story the capital of the world yes oh we're gonna we're about to get nurse bedding up in here <laughs> Most likely. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to keep my cat in the room just so that he can meow every time we say his name, which is Hemingway. And I like to insist that he had it first, even though we named him at so because he's a Hemingway cat with six toes. Oh, the love. Delightful. Uh, there are going to be some suicide jokes. We might have to put a trigger warning on there. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, <right>. that was <laughs> that was. I managed to be both bad and good. Yes, I know. That's, that's my demographic. Well, anyhow. Bravo, boo. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, this has been Short Story. Short Podcast. Short Podcast.